I want to start this morning with some disasters. 1887, the Yellow River flooded in China and two million people died. That's the entire state of Nebraska gone. 1931, several places flooded in China again, killing four million people. And that's the entire state of Oklahoma gone in just a matter of days. You all know about the 1930s under Hitler, 6 million Jews were burned, gassed, experimented on, and all 6 million were killed within a 10-year period. 1958 to 1961, a famine killed around 40 million in China. That's the entire state of California, gone in that time period. 11 million by famine in India in the 1780s, that's all of Ohio, gone. 1970, a cyclone hit Pakistan and killed over 500,000 people in a matter of days. 2004, the Indian Ocean tsunami killed 228,000 people. In the 70s, within a period of a few years, over 300,000 Ugandans were literally butchered by their own leader under the reign of Idi Amin. Black Death you may know from history, killed 75 million people in the 1300s, and 50 million died from the great influenza in 1918 to 1920, and 71,000 died from the eruption of Mount Tambora in one day on April 10th, 1815. Now add to that list all the greatest disasters, the most harsh persecutions, known to this planet, including every dictator, every despot and maniac ruler, and then add all of them up together and lump them into just one short period, a seven-year period of time, and that lump a sum of crisis, all of them together, that most devastating accumulation of tragedy will not come even close to what awaits this planet during the time of the tribulation. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Zephaniah. Hopefully you have a Bible today, you're going to need it. In Zephaniah, you're going to see what the Lord has to say about this incredible time that is yet to come. It is in that crispy portion of your Bible, between Habakkuk and Haggai. Habakkuk and Haggai. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 and read what it says about the great tribulation from your Bible. It says, I'm reading for the NASB, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. The day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against fortified cities and the high corner towers, the strongest will fall. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind they, because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants 
of the earth. Wow. Jesus himself says this incredible statement about the coming tribulational period. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. You'll look it up later. Listen to it and what it says. It says, there will be a great tribulation, the Lord says. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Nothing will compare to this time. You think you've had bad weeks. This prophetic week, which lasts seven years, will result in such worldwide suffering that men will literally beg to die. They would rather die than live. There will be an international desire for death. These seven years in the Bible are called Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord, the wrath to come, the day of distress, the day of alarm, the day of desolation, the day of vengeance, the day of destruction, the day of the Lord's anger, and they're called the great tribulation. You say, why? Why would God do such a horrible thing to this planet and to all mankind? The answer is simple. To judge sin. To judge sin. Also, to judge the nation of Israel for rejecting her Messiah. To fulfill the promises also that God made to his chosen nation. And to punish mankind for their sinful rebellion against Jesus Christ. Against Christ. And to expose Satan and his rebellious sinful world system. And to show all men and all women what and who he is. He is the father of lies. We're in the midst of a series on what is to come. Last week we studied the rapture. And this week we're in the midst of the day of the Lord. The study of the day of the Lord. The end times events. What the Bible teaches about what is coming in our future. For you theologians, it's called eschatology, the study of last things. And from, we're going to look at the entire scripture, but we're going to focus today on the book of Revelation. So if you would open your Bibles to the book of Revelation as we go through it. And as we do, I want to give you some hints on what to look for. When you read this book, you should be looking for God's hatred of sin. God's hatred of sin. Just generally, those things that are opposed to his law and opposite of his character and his hatred of those things. You should be looking for God's rightness and righteousness and justice in punishing sin. You should be also recognizing that worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ is our highest privilege. Our highest privilege. And you should also be looking for the need for Christ to rule this planet in the future and to rule our lives right now. Right now. You should be looking for that. So if you're there, Revelation chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of a, a highlight at the end of Revelation. In chapter 22, verse 10, the angel commands the apostle John by saying, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, don't make it hidden. I want it revealed. Why? Because the end time is near. For the time is near. This is coming, my friends. This is coming to planet earth. This is as sure as your savior. This is going to happen. And God wants you to know the content of this book, this last book in your Bible, of the 66 books that are there, the book of Revelation. In fact, it is the only book in the Bible that begins with a promise of blessing to the reader in chapter 1, verse 3, and ends with a promise of blessing to those who read the book in chapter 22, verse 7. You are promised to be blessed 
by reading this book. That's great. Not only does God want you to know this book, but He promises to bless you from reading it and hearing it today. So you'll be blessed today. Isn't that great? Why is this book so important? Well, look at it. Chapter 1, verse 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the uncovering truth of Jesus Christ. It is revealing things about Jesus Christ that you and I need to know. We need to know this. I mean, the Christ of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was veiled the entire time. His whole earthly ministry, except for once on the Mount of Transfiguration when the veil was removed. But now in Revelation, you see Christ unveiled. You see Him revealed. Christ in all of His glory. And that's what makes this book so special. It's not the end times events. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. Revelation is telling you things you wouldn't know about Christ unless you read this book. And again, friends, please bless me, if you would, by calling it the Revelation. Don't say revelations. It's not plural. It is the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. It's revealing Christ. It's Him that we're focusing on and about those things that are about to take place very near. Christ is coming again soon. And this book is written to get us ready. So how does it start? Well, chapter 1, verse 9, take a look at it. John records the first of his visions. He shows us a picture of Christ moving among and ministering into the local churches. And as a result of this vision, we get the theme verse of the book of Revelation. In fact, it shows us the outline of the entire book. Take a look at 119, if you would, in your Bible. It says this, the, Write, therefore, the things which you have seen. That's the visions we just read about in chapter 1. That's the past, the things you have seen. And then he says, and the things which are. That's the seven churches listed in chapters 2 and 3. That's the present. And then he says, and the things which shall take place after these things. That's chapters 4 through 22, which are all yet future to John and to us today. That's the future. So what's happening right now? I'm so glad you asked. That's chapters 2 and 3. John records seven messages from God, from Christ, to seven literal churches. Literal churches in Asia Minor. Real churches that represent the churches of all churches in every age. All seven of these churches have always existed and will always exist in every age until Jesus Christ comes again. Now, there are a few who think that they are chronological uh, that they walk through the ages in order from church number one to church number seven. But there's no textual evidence for that. But they do represent churches, and they are literal churches found in Asia Minor. What kind of churches are there? Well, there's the number one, the cold Orthodox church. The number two, the persecuted church. Number three, the church that's married to the world. Not a good thing. Number four, the church that tolerates sin. Not a good thing. There's the dead church, a very not good thing. Number six was the faithful church. And number seven, the apostate church. You say, Chris, which church is FBC? Well, <laughs> the answer is whatever quality about us that is most dominant. Whatever quality about us is most dominant. The question I want you to ask is, which Christian are you? Which one are you? Are you the cold Christian? Are you the worldly Christian? Are you the Christian who tolerates sin? Or are you the faithful Christian? I have to tell you, when I'm looking through this and reading through this, I am so thankful for so many of you 
going through very, very difficult times, and yet you remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And that's something that I hope that we continue to pursue. Now after chapter 3, though, what's amazing is the church doesn't appear again until the second coming in chapter 19. It disappears. You see, where's the rapture from last week? Where is it? Yeah, right, see it right there? Look at between chapters 3 and 4. Look right there between chapters 3 and 4 in Revelation. Right in that white space right there, put rapture. Rapture. What's happened to the church? Well, we're in heaven. We're worshiping God in chapter 4. We're worshiping Christ in chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins the third section of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, or 1 is chapter 1, well, the things that were. 2 is chapters 2 and 3, the things that are. 3 is chapters 4 through 22, the things which shall take place after these. Well, who's in heaven? Well, we are in heaven. Are you excited about being in heaven? We're in heaven, the church. You see the 24-hour elders, 24 hours, 24 elders, represent the church. We all have white robes. They all have white robes. They all have crowns, white robes, crowns, and they all have thrones. Now, all three of those are only promised to the church, only promised to the church. In 5.9, it says they're redeemed people, redeemed people. So what we find in chapter 4 is the redeemed church in heaven taking part of the main event of heaven. And what is the main event of heaven? Worship. Worship. They're offering themselves to Christ in glorious worship. Not just singing praise, but their whole existence offered to Christ. All are worshiping the Lord for all eternity. Now listen, it's not the only thing we do in eternity. But it is a glorious part of what we do in eternity. To worship our God in absolute perfection. Take a look at verse 8 and verse 11 of chapter 4. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who what? Is to come. Take a look at verse 11. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Now in chapter 5, the worship that has been going on in chapter 4 is now broken. In chapter 5, why? Well, laying next to God the Father is a scroll. There's a scroll there, and it's sealed with seven seals. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a strong voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Now, what is this scroll, this book? It is the title deed to the planet Earth. It is God's will and testament to give Jesus Christ the earth. It is His. Just as Psalm 2 promised, Psalm 2, that the nations are Christ's inheritance and all of the land of the earth His possession. Christ will rule this planet it is His to rule. It's His. And one of the elders, of course, knows that only Christ is worthy to open the scroll. And so now it is in Christ's hand in verse 7. He's about to open it. What causes the response to this is unbelievable because this causes a great response when it's in Christ's hand in verses 8 to 14. Guess what it is? More worship. More glory. More praise culminating in the song Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb. 
Now, what's happening in heaven? Well, the citizens of heaven, can you picture yourself being one of those citizens? They're tired of the earth being in rebellion. Rebellion to Christ. Rejecting Christ. Embracing false religion. Major religions. And so they're excited about the final terrible judgment about to occur. What is it? The tribulation. The tribulation is about to begin. So you say, well, how can a a righteous, glorified saints, and how can a righteous, holy, just God, a loving God, bring about the most terrible destruction the world has ever seen or ever will see? How can a God of love do this? You ever ask that question? Because take a look at chapter 4, verse 11. Who's our creator? Christ, our creator. He created a world that is actually in rebellion to him. They're opposed to him. They're fighting him. He created this world. And then take a look at chapter 5, verse 9. He is our redeemer. He suffered for our sin. He bled and bore God's wrath for a world that doesn't care, that shakes its fist in his face. Is God justified to pour out his wrath? Yes or no? Yes, he is. This is not unfair. What's unfair is that everyone who's rejecting Christ is not in hell right now. What's unfair is that Jesus Christ took my punishment instead of me. That's unfair. And chapters 4 and 5 give us a very clear picture, my friends, of the worthiness of Christ. It shows him in chapter 4 and 5 to be righteous, absolutely perfect, sacrificial, loving, just, and our creator, the one who gave us life, and our redeemer, the one who gave us new life when we rebelled, after we rebelled. So we will not doubt him. There's a very clear picture in chapter 4 and 5, so we don't doubt him after what he's about to describe in chapters 6 through 18, which is the tribulation. In chapter 6, we're thrown back to earth for the beginning of the tribulation, which starts with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are the first four of the seal judgments. The first seal, look at verse 2. I'll read it out loud. It says, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The white horse and the bow with no arrow signifies peace. And the crown is not a king's crown, but a victor's crown. This is the Antichrist who comes with a false peace maintained by a cold war. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, it says he'll make covenants and promises in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but then he will break his promise halfway through the tribulation, right at the midpoint, which leads us to the second seal. The second seal in verses 3 and 4, look at it, which talk about a red horse of war. The second half of the tribulation period, the second three and a half years, will be a time of slaughter and massacre. The first seal could be actually the first three and a half years, and the second seal and following, all after that, goes through the second three and a half years, The Antichrist, again, will set himself up to be God right at the middle point, then slaughter Israel, and then go to war with several nations of the world. The third seal is the black horse. That's verses 5 and 6, where one full day's wage buys barely enough food for one person to live on. A full day's wage. The world will be in the first and worst, excuse me, 
worldwide famine ever. The worst. I think it's bad now. It's going to be incredibly bad. And the fourth seal will be the pale horse, which is the seal of death. One-fourth of all the earth's population will die with the seal. Listen, if that's said in modern-day terms, that means two billion people will die in the first wash through the seals. The fifth seal is verses 9 through 11. It's those who have been slaughtered for their faith during the tribulation, those who have not heard the gospel, until after the rapture of the church, they gave their lives to Christ, and then they were butchered by the Antichrist. In verse 10, they cry out, How long, O Lord, are you going to wait to bring vengeance upon those who killed us? How long are you going to wait to get them back, so to speak? And God's response is incredible in verse 11. He says, Be patient. Verse 11, Here's a white robe. Now just rest. That's my righteousness. Until all who are going to be saved and martyred is complete. Can you believe that? Wait, you missed that. God, even during the tribulation, is still waiting for the repentance of the lost. Still waiting patiently for the salvation of the lost. Aren't you glad that He waited for you? You may be the one, again, that He's waiting for before the rapture comes. You could be the one person that needs to come to know Christ, and then we could all go. Would you please hurry up? Again, so we can get out of here. The sixth seal is incredible. Read verses 12 to 14. It says, And I looked, and he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and like a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. This is big. Right? You, you ever seen, remember in the old days, it used to be the screen, you'd pull it down, and you know what I mean? And sometimes it, you'd let go of it, and it would kind of roll back up, right, and go, remember that? That's the sky. That's how he's describing the sky. The sky's going to do that. You say, well, how is that going to happen? I don't know. It's going to be bad. It's going to be scary. Scary time. What do men do? Men see all these incredible events that you just read about. There's going to be amazing things happening. Will people, men and women, will they repent? Will they confess their sins? No. They're not. They're going to pray that the rocks will fall on them and kill them. And hide them from the wrath of the Lamb of God. In verses 15, 16, and 17. They know it's Christ. They know it's Christ. And yet they still sin and they will not repent. Can you believe that? That's the hardness of the human heart on display. That's the, 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 the lostness of mankind without God working on your heart to draw you to Himself. That's what you're seeing. And note, those six seals took you all the way through the entire tribulational period, through all seven years. At the end of the tribulation, as everything falls apart and darkness sets in, men will scream and run for protection as the glory of Christ penetrates the darkness with blinding light in his return. This takes us all the way to the end of the tribulation, which concludes with the return of Jesus Christ. Since you can only take so much judgment without starting to get depressed, 
there are rest spots, or I call them glory pauses in the book of the Revelation. And instead of being totally depressed with what's happening on earth, there are heavenly scenes, these glory spots that show us that God is just. And there are earthly scenes that are thrown in through the, in the midst of all this judgment that show us that God is expressing His mercy and grace. Even in the midst of His wrath, there is incredible mercy, incredible grace. And this is for John, of course, the author And it's also for us, the reader. Good journalism tells you the story in brief and then goes back in to fill in the details. And that's exactly what the book of Revelation does. It takes you all the way to the end, then goes back and fills in details. Uh, It's high interest writing. So the seals give you details. And then they're followed by the trumpet judgments. They give you more details. And then it's kind of sort of followed by the bold judgments that give you even more details about the judgment of God. But in the midst of all this judgment, God lets you know in chapter 7, there is some protection, there is some blessing, there is some people who are being spared, not everyone dies. Who's spared? It's the 144,000 Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel. The 144,000. In the middle of the week, after three and a half years, there are 144,000 Jews who are saved. Now they're probably led to Christ by the two prophets we're going to see in a little bit that God has and uses in a mighty way. The 144,000 will preach the gospel to billions of unsaved people. Billions. Are they effective? Well, read chapter 7, verse 9. Take a look at it. Chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, and I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, And all tribes and all peoples and all tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Where did this multitude come from? They're the fruit of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. There are those who had not heard the gospel uh, in this life, uh, and yet when the tribulation started, now by God's grace, they've not only heard, but they have believed in the gospel and given their lives to Jesus Christ. If you're tempted to think that God is unjust in judgment, think again. He chooses 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, and also a multitude that's, you can't even number them. They, They number more than the sand of the seashore from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Here's the key. God is sovereign in salvation. Can I hear an amen to that? He's sovereign. Though we do not know who's in each tribe, since those records were destroyed in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, God knows all who's in each tribe and chooses 12,000 from each tribe. As a result, verse 11 and following, there is great worship again, great worship, and now with six seals already unleashed on the world, we're prepared for the seventh seal in chapter 8. Chapter 8. Now there are some, I do not believe this, I do not believe, but there are some who believe that chapter 8, verse 1 is proof that there are no women in heaven. Yeah, there are some. It says in chapter 8, verse 1, that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I do not hold to that view. Since when it comes to talking, I always have the last two words in my home, right? You know what they are. Yes, dear. That's right. Now, you know what that silence is all about? I'm so glad you asked. That silence in chapter 8, verse 1, 
is that heaven isn't actually heaven isn't actually experiencing awe. It's, it's like a mouth-opening gape at the holocaust of divine wrath being poured out on the earth. It is so unbelievable that those in heaven are, in a sense, gasping. All that's going on in pouring out God's wrath in preparation for the Lord's return. At this point, the Apostle John reviews a little, not back to the beginning of the tribulation, but probably back to the fourth or fifth or sixth seal, and there you'll find the trumpet judgments. What I'm saying is this, that the seals really are not followed by the trumpet judgments, and the trumpet judgments are not really followed by the bowl judgments, but each set takes you to the end of the tribulation and then goes back a little, but not to the beginning, and carries you further along. It's like waves working towards high tide. It's moving more and more in and covering some of the same ground. The intensity of the tribulation is like a, the shape of a long neck trumpet. It starts small, but then it explodes towards the final outpouring of wrath at the end. Most of the judgments fall at the end of the tribulation, and that's why there is silence toward the end. It's incredible what God pours out at the end, and if Christ did not end it by His return, every single person would die. Look at the trumpet judgments, if you would. The first trumpet is the judgment upon all vegetation in chapter 8, verse 7. One-third of all plant life is destroyed. That means that men will have less food, that animals will have less food, and will all be struggling with less oxygen to breathe because that's plants that provide that for us. Secondly, the, the second trumpet in verses 8 and 9, one-third of all marine life dies, leaving one floating, stinking mess over the oceans. Because men refuse to glorify God as their creator, God destroys his own creation. Uh, in other words, evolutionary thinking is judged. Those people who think that this all happened by accident, that's judged. It gives no glory to God to think that way, by the way, that God is not the creator. Thirdly, the third trumpet in verses 10 and 11 wipes out one-third of all fresh water. That's going to be a dilemma. Fourthly, the fourth trumpet involves the loss of one-third of the light from the sun, the moon, the stars at night, so that day and night are now confused. People lose their calendar. People wake up and they, they, they don't know if it's day or night. They don't know if, uh, what day it is, what time it is, etc. And then in verse 13, look at verse 13, an angel says, Whoa! 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 Can you I say amen to that? Whoa! I mean, it's curse, curse, curse. Uh, what he's saying is, if you think that's bad, you wait till you see the next three trumpets. You ain't seen nothing yet. In chapter 9, verse 1, you have the fifth trumpet. He says, in the middle of the verse, I saw a star fall from heaven. That's Lucifer, the devil, with a key to unlock the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit. And let out demons that have been locked up in that prison, which is the demon prison there, and since before the time of the flood, they've been there. These are most likely the demons which cohabitated with women right prior to the flood. These are the worst of the worst demons. Before the flood, these demons created giant offspring as an attack to destroy humanity. And why do they want to destroy humanity? Because they want to destroy the possibility that Christ could be born as a man. If he could be born as a man, then he can take the place of men and women and die in their place. But if 
the humanity is corrupted, then he cannot be born as a human being and die for them. Are you getting it? So it's a method in which to destroy. If Satan, through his demons, does corrupt humanity, then Christ couldn't be born as a man and bear our sin on the cross and destroy Satan's slavery of mankind. So basically, verse 2 says, once they're released, these demons come out like a, you pour gas on a fire. You ever done that? Every guy in this room has. Okay, every guy somehow has poured gas or lighter fluid and, you know, watch that. That's what happens. These demons who've been locked up for centuries are now released in a gush of smoke to torment men, not creation, for five months. Five months. Torment is so bad, it's like a scorpion bite, the worst one, which will cause men to desire death over life, which makes sense since their king is, according to verse 11, the destroyer. He's the king And that king is Satan himself. But if you think that's bad, there are two more trumpets. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Here we go. Chapter 9, verse 13. The sixth trumpet blows and a demonic army is released by an angel. And this army comes from the east, it says, across the Euphrates. The number is 200 million and they're most likely demons or demon-possessed men. It's interesting that the Bible says that they're from the east since the Associated Press in 1964 released the fact that China marshals an army of 200 million. That was back in 64. As a result, they will kill one-third of the world's people with some unique weaponry. Hundreds of millions of people will die. Most likely demon-possessed men. But demons everywhere. And how will mankind respond to these plagues? Will they repent? Will they finally turn to Christ towards God and admit their sin. No, verse 21 and 20, it says that the rest who were not killed did not repent of their wickedness. They did not repent. Look at chapter 10 to give us rest from this destruction and the picture of all this stubborn hopelessness. The Spirit through John gives us another vision of Christ. So again, another glory spot to help us deal with all this judgment And when told by an angel to take out and eat the title deed of the earth, John said that it was sweet, and he said it was bitter as he eats this scroll. What does that mean? Well, sweet because it means the second coming of Christ, and bitter because it means the condemnation of lost men to eternal punishment in hell. You know what? That's the heart of every Christian right here today. Sweet that we rejoice and look forward to the second coming of Christ, but bitter over the hard heart of those who reject Christ. People we love, friends that we have who are lost, sometimes our children, sometimes our parents or precious relatives, people that we care about. It's sweet that Christ is coming. It's bitter about their torment. And then in verse 11, we get another look at God's grace with the two witnesses. Two witnesses. This is one of my favorite parts of the book of Revelation. i got to tell you, I'll be real honest with you. These are the two ones who lead the 144,000 to Christ. They're only found in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So they're mightily used. I believe that they're used to lead that 144,000 who then are used to uh, evangelize the, the lost world. Who are they? I hope right now you're looking at one. I'm signing up. You say, Chris, you're not a Jew. I've got a dubious heritage. I do. I have a dubious heritage. It could mean I'm a Jew secretly, and the Lord knows, and I could be this guy. I want to be this guy. 
I want to be one of them. I don't care who the other one is. I just want to be one of them. Wouldn't it be cool to be in the scripture? Wouldn't it be cool to preach the word and when they reject, you just kind of, and you toast them? I mean, that would be cool, right? This is going to be great. The world's going to hate these two. I mean, hate them with a passion. We'll find out about them next week. Chapter 12 describes Satan's hatred for and war against God's people Israel. Chapter 13 gives us the detail of the Antichrist. Chapter 14 tells us the battles of Armageddon, not just battle, but battles of Armageddon. Chapter 15 prepares us for chapter 16, which is the machine gun bold judgments at the end of the tribulation. Chapter 17 tells us about the religion that is found during the tribulational period. Chapter 18 tells us about the world economy during the tribulational period. And chapter 19 tells us the very best event of all the tribulation, which is the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? You say, Chris, I want to know all of this. Chris, I want to understand all of what is to come. Then, you have to come back next week for part two. So take this home. Take this home. Letter A. Let God's mercy drive your responses and not vengeance. Let God's mercy drive your responses and not vengeance. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Romans 12, 19. Look at it in your Bible if you can. It's, it's one you should know. It says, never take your own revenge. Never. He says, beloved, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Leave room for the wrath of God. The more you study tribulation, you'll understand what he means when he says, leave room for the wrath of God. Once you know what God is going to do to the unjust, once you know what God is permanently going to do to the immoral, to the wicked people of this world, to those who deceive, to those who have manipulated, to those who have corrupted and perverted and misled. When you know that God righteously judges, it, and that judgment will be severe, and that judgment will be forever. When you know that, you can begin to have mercy. And you can begin to plead for the need for the gospel. Don't you sometimes marvel over the fact when you read about other countries and they're persecuted and they're about to kill them in a horrible manner that there's a graciousness on the part of those believers towards those persecutors? You say, how did they do that? They understood and left room for the wrath of God. They understood that God will take care of them. That God will bring about justice. That God will do that and we don't have to. We don't have to. We can allow mercy and the need for the gospel to drive our responses even to those who are unjust and unkind to you. Leave room, Christian, for the wrath of God. Leave room. Letter B. Let God's providence guide your thinking on current events. Let God's providence guide your thinking. God is very detailed about what He's going to bring about during the tribulation, what He's going to do. You already know from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things together to those who love Him, to those who are His children, according to 
accomplishing his purposes. You already know that God is provident. You, you realize when God is provident, that means that every single day he works out all the incredible details of your life in order to accomplish his will. His will is always accomplished. So therefore, every day for a Christian is a miracle. Is it not? In God's providence. Every day, God is so great. He takes all the millions of variables in your life to accomplish his will. And you also know Proverbs 16, verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You already know Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Then start living every day instead of upset over the news. Instead of grieved over the direction of politics or our culture. Realize, like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Trust in God's providence, knowing that His plan is perfect. His plan. Yes, the world will have to decline before the end, but Christ will certainly judge evil, and He will rescue His children. Amen? Leave room. Letter C. Let God's grace move your heart to worship. Let God's grace move your heart to worship. The Apostle John makes certain that you recall how fair and how gracious Christ is. Even in the midst of all this judgment, he makes sure you know. In the midst of the revelation, there is these spots to remind us that God is still gracious. In the midst of judgment, he continually points out that God created you. That Christ redeemed you. At great cost, he redeemed you. As God pours out his wrath on the earth, we're reminded that Christ took an eternity of God's wrath upon himself on the cross. Are you ready? For your sins. All that you deserved for all an eternity was poured out on Jesus Christ and all of his children as well. And because Jesus Christ died for your sin and rose again, Christ deserves our worship. Does he not? Should we not break forth in worship when we realize that we are not to be the recipient of His wrath, but we are a recipient of His grace? Not because we deserve it, but because He lavishly loved us. Our worship should be our entire life, everything we have given to Him. And letter D, let God's judgment drive your surrender to Christ. You don't want to go through the tribulation. You don't want to go through it because it is God pouring out his wrath and the tribulation is the preview of eternal hell. See, what's hell going to be like? Take a look at the tribulation. That's the preview. What the, what the tribulation is is the porch. And as you go through the door to hell, it's the porch. It's just the entrance. It's the beginning. And the only way to escape, the only way is to turn from your sin. And to put your life, your faith in Christ on the work of the cross. Otherwise, all the tribulation and all an eternity more of the tribulation await you and anyone else who is not in Jesus Christ. Pray with me, would you please? Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible reminder of your wrath that is completely just. Your wrath which will be poured out on rebellious men and rebellious women. A wrath that is sure and true. And Father, we pray that we might respond and see that you are also a gracious God. That you sacrificed everything for us.
you gave us eternal life at the highest cost. And so we see you as a just God and a loving God and a righteous God. And we pray, Father, we might respond as Christians in worship, as Christians who would forgive those who have harmed us or been unjust to us, as Christians who need to share the gospel with those who don't know you. And Father, as those who might not be saved to be drawn to you, we pray that you would begin that work. Father, we know that there are parents and even children in our midst who are not following you. And Father, all that awaits them is the tribulation and then eternal torment forever. And we pray, Father, that they would not play with their eternity, that they would not toy around with their eternal life. We pray, Father, that you would do a great work in our midst. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.